Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what's up for today? All right, everyone. So today we have a great episode on President Obama. And recently, President Obama has begun a midterm campaign push, actually giving stump speeches in California and at the University of Illinois. And as we've covered in the past, Obama is a very persuasive and thematic speaker. And in his current speeches, he has a clear mission to frame the Trump White House in a particular way. Now, before we get into exactly how he is framing it, we'd like to ask a favor of you as you're listening to this podcast. Now, if you're a loyal listener, you know that at the end of each show, we ask you to check out our Patreon page, as this is what supports the show and allows for it to continue. And we're going to be rewarding all of our Patreon subscribers with exclusive content. In fact, if you haven't supported the show yet, you're about to miss out on actually part two of the speeches that we're going to be doing with this. So today we're going to be covering one of Obama's speeches from the University of Illinois. And in the Patreon exclusively, we're going to be covering one of his stump speeches in California, where he goes into a lot more detail. And so... Uh, make sure to do that. If you're enjoying the show, please take action and support it. You can support us for as little as buying us a cup of coffee. So it's really, you know, not that much. Another way that you can support us is to rate and review us in iTunes. And as always, we really appreciate your support. Now, in this speech that we're going to review, again, at the University of Illinois, Obama, in his characteristic style, begins to use imagery metaphor and persuasive language in order to bring the audience into, well, what we know to be a trance-like state, into a hypnotic state. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that first clip. Now, some of you may think I'm exaggerating when I say this November's elections are more important than any I can remember in my lifetime. And I know politicians say that all the time. I have been guilty of saying it a few times, particularly when I was on the ballot. (laughs) But just a glance at recent headlines should tell you that this moment really is different. The stakes really are higher. The consequences of any of us sitting on the sidelines are more dire. And it's not as if we haven't had big elections before or big choices to make in our history. The fact is, democracy has never been easy, and our founding fathers argued about everything. We waged a civil war. We overcame depression. We've lurched from 
eras of great progressive change to periods of retrenchment. Still, most Americans alive today, certainly the students who are here, have operated under some common assumptions about who we are and what we stand for. Out of the turmoil of the Industrial Revolution and the Great Depression, America adapted a new economy, a 20th century economy, guiding our free market with regulations to protect health and safety and fair competition, empowering workers with union movements, investing in science and infrastructure and educational institutions like U of I, strengthening our system of primary and secondary education, and stitching together a social safety net. And all of this led to unrivaled prosperity and the rise of a broad and deep middle class in the sense that if you worked hard, you could climb the ladder of success. And now the tactic that Obama is using right here is it's that he's building a collective sort of story, a, a group of people, in this case, the United States of America, people of many different backgrounds, many different cultures. He's able to tie them all together in this narrative history of where the United States sort of came from. This is important because this is something that Obama does in a lot of his speeches. He likes to sort of build the narrative of this is the history of us. This is the, the people we are, where we came from. And you'll see it. his speeches divided up in this way, right? This is uh, the story of us. This is our history. This is the moment that we're in right now. And then this is the choice that we have to make. This is if we take the wrong choice. This is if we take the right choice. Mm. And then this is what happens when we when we take the right choice because we know that we will. This is sort of the 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 arc that he builds into every one of his speeches and I know this because I was on his campaign and I remember he taught us this very same method to us. Yeah, past, present, future. Here's the right way, here's the wrong way. There's the dark road, there's the light road. This is the progressive ideals. You know what I really love about this is that he starts off with this idea of now some of you may think that I'm exaggerating when I say this is the most important time in history. And he says that it's the most important time in history. And then he proceeds to go back in the past and tell us about all the other times in history <laughs> in which were important times. Okay. But it doesn't matter the logic of the situation. You know, he's using this brilliantly articulated wording, this language, this motivational idea. You know, we lurched you know, from the uh, progressive ideals and went into this entrenchment. We have the turmoil of the Industrial Revolution. And America adapted. America adapted in a way of guiding our free market, of strengthening, of stitching together our unrivaled prosperity. I mean, listen to these words, right? And you want to pay attention specifically to the verb forms in which he's using so the un, what we would call an unspecified verb, he is 
giving the person a permission to fill in exactly how everything is happening. And by using a word like strengthening and stitching together, he's painting a picture in a person's mind. And um, I, at the end of this, was really inspired to go out and campaign for Obama to be the next history teacher. I mean, I think that he's <laughs> he's going to be great in that position. And what's cool here is that he does this sort of the tying it all together, the sort of um, the vague cause and effect, like all of these turmoil, like traumatic events that America has gone through and, and risen up from all led to the prosperous middle class, right? It, it, it's, I mean, you could say that a lot of things led to that, but he's saying this in particular and you, you know, you kind of are inclined to go along with it because it, it's part of that story that we've all been told over the years. And now I want to get to back to his storytelling because, you know, we've seen the moment where he talks about, you know, the older American history. And now right here in the clip that we're about to play, he starts expanding that history to include more diverse groups. So while everybody may have experienced or have uh, sort of the collective uh, consciousness of this um of this history he's now expanding that to groups that you may or may not actually be a part of and let's take a listen now not everyone was included in this prosperity there was a lot more work to do and so in response to the stain of slavery and segregation and the reality of racial discrimination the civil rights movement not only opened new doors for african americans but also opened up the floodgates of opportunity for women and, and, and Americans with disabilities and LGBT Americans, others to make their own claims to full and equal citizenship. And although discrimination remained a pernicious force in our society and continues to this day, and although there are controversies about how to best ensure genuine equality of opportunity. There's been at least rough agreement among the overwhelming majority of Americans that our country is strongest when everybody's treated fairly. When people are judged on the merits and the content of their character and not the color of their skin or the way in which they worship God, or their last names. And that consensus then extended beyond our borders. And from the wreckage of World War II, we built a post-war web, architecture, system of alliances and institutions to underwrite freedom and oppose Soviet totalitarianism and to help poor countries develop And American leadership across the globe wasn't perfect. We made mistakes. At times, we lost sight of our ideals. We had fierce arguments about Vietnam, and we had fierce arguments about Iraq. But thanks to our leadership, a bipartisan leadership, and the efforts of diplomats and Peace Corps volunteers, and most of all, thanks to the constant sacrifices of our men and women in uniform 
we not only reduce the prospects of war between the world's great powers, we not only won the Cold War, we helped spread a commitment to certain values and principles, like the rule of law and human rights and democracy, and the notion of the inherent dignity and worth of every individual. And even those countries that didn't abide by those principles were still subject to, to shame and, and still had to at least give lip service to the idea. And that provided a lever to continually improve the prospects for people around the world. That's the story of America. Uh, this is really interesting because what he's doing is he's expanding that group of that's experiencing that shared history, that group that may remember that, into a more inclusive, broader coalition of people. See, right here, he's setting the stage for his entire speech. He's saying, this is what happened to this group. This is now what happened to other groups who are all part of this larger group that's America. And this is our history together. And then in this portion, he also starts tying it into here are the common beliefs. Here are the common themes that we all believe, regardless of what group that we're part of. And then if you pay attention here, he's just he's defining America and America's values right here before anybody else can define that in their head. Nobody can say, no, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, because he's setting all the building blocks right now for all of the things he's going to be talking about later on in his speech. This is all of the foundation of the beliefs, and then later on he's going to be calling back to these, and you'll see it, we'll point it out. Yeah, he, he goes into this idea of, again, going into those metaphors, right, not only but also not only opened no doors for this person, but also opened opportunities in case we go from doors to opportunities. He talks about the wreckage of World War II, the architecture, the the web. And he says this, you know, referencing when he's building this foundation, as Alex just said, one of the foundations he builds is this thematic structure of not perfection, but better, okay? Not perfection. You know, he says it wasn't perfect. We made mistakes, but thanks to, and then he goes into in our leadership, bipartisan politics, our men and women in uniform. Later on, we're going to be uh, referencing a clip where he actually does a whole segment on this, where he actually talks about this substantially, where he demystifies the idea of perfection, and he goes into, yeah, but we still are able to do things better. So you can listen a little bit later on you know, for this. And even though he's setting this foundation, notice how thematic it is. Notice how trance-like it is. Notice the wording is artfully vague, where he says things like, it helps spread a commitment to certain values and principles, like the rule of law. Well, what exactly is he saying there? <laughs> helped spread a commitment. Whose commitments, what kind of commitments, what does that mean exactly? To certain values. Whose values? 
what are these certain values we're talking about? The values and principles, like the rule of law, okay? And for a lot of people, he speaks directly to them. You know, he speaks directly to those people, but they get to fill in their own picture in their head. This is something we, we keep coming back to. And notice how he underlines the whole thing. He underlines it with, that's the story of America. Very, very powerful. Let's get to the next clip. That's the story of America. A story of progress. Fitful progress, incomplete progress, but progress. And that progress wasn't achieved by just a handful of famous leaders making speeches. It was won because of countless quiet acts of heroism and dedication by citizens, by ordinary people, many of them not much older than you. It was won because rather than be bystanders to history, ordinary people fought and marched and mobilized and built and yes, voted to make history. And real fast, we'll stop it right there because right now we see Obama attaching all of those ideas of, of progress to the act of voting and the act of speaking out. And that's really important right there because I think one of the motivations and one of the goals of this speech is to encourage this group of young people just graduating from college to get out and vote and to get be, be active. And this is what he's doing through this entire speech is that he's taking the momentum of the themes. He's taking the momentum of getting them into that very, you know, dream filled place, that place of inspiration, that place of shared history. And then he takes it and he moves it into something very tangible. He says, get out and vote. And later on, he's going to tie it to other things as well. Noticing that he's able to do that is something that I think is a little bit different than what we've seen Obama do commonly in the past. In these speeches specifically, he's actually starting to really move them into tangible action about what he wants them to do. Of course, there's always been another darker aspect to America's story. Progress doesn't just move in a straight line. There's a reason why progress hasn't been easy and why throughout our history, every two steps forward seems to sometimes produce one step back. And now notice the imagery he starts getting into right here. Progress doesn't always move in a straight line. There has always been a darker aspect to, to this. Every two steps forward brings one step back. He's, it's, it's so imaginative and it's so vivid that you're able to start getting into this world of, of there's a darker side to it all, almost as if it's like a movie trailer almost. Yeah, and he's also painting the idea that where we are now in our politics is not the end, okay? It's just, it's, it's, the, middle, it's the middle of the movie. There is something after this. There is a step after that. It also is seeding the idea of action. There's a step after it. There's a step before it. We're going to be making progress in the, in the long term. 
it it exactly creates this this extended history of America. Also, it's like this is where we've been, this is where we are now, and this is where we're going. Especially if you do what I what I want you to do. Exactly. Think about all of this as if this is a movie trailer, right? This is or or a movie in general where the first part of a speech was just the setup right there. But now you're being introduced to the villains. Like now this is the, 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 the sort of challenge to the hero of America. Right. Um, and let's hear, what is that? We have a responsibility to conserve the amazing bounty, the natural resources of this country and of this planet for future generations. Each time we've gotten closer to those ideals, Somebody somewhere is pushed back. The status quo pushes back. Sometimes the backlash comes from people who are genuinely, if wrongly, fearful of change. More often it's manufactured by the powerful and the privileged who want to keep us divided and keep us angry and keep us cynical because that helps them maintain the status quo and keep their power and keep their privilege. And you happen to be coming of age during one of those moments. It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. He's just capitalizing on resentments that politicians have been fanning for years. A fear and anger that's rooted in our past, but it's also born out of the enormous upheavals that have taken place in your brief lifetimes. What's he talking about right here? Notice the coded language, right? That's what stood out to me the most. It's born in a fear that's rooted in our past, and then he brings it back to uh, that that it still continues today through the upheavals that have occurred. Now, one might think that maybe this is racial that he's alluding to right here, that right now we're dealing with a lot of racial politics. You could think about it economically, that now he's talking about, you know, the the union upheavals and the fights for worker rights. Or maybe it's immigration, and now they're pushing back against uh, the upheavals we've made in immigration, or or women's rights. It could be anything right there, but you're able to fill that in with whatever you want. Yeah, and Trump isn't the cause. He's just the symptom. And, and again, here we go. We're, we're within this movie. We were within this place where he's starting to paint in, hey, here are the, here is the villain, and the villain isn't only a particular person. Okay, notice he doesn't say that Trump's not a villain. The villain isn't only a particular person. It's actually something much broader than that. And so if you think about it now from the people listening to this, now who do they have to fight against? Well, they don't just fight against Trump. They're fighting now against a whole set of ideals or a whole set of attitudes and 
which attitudes specifically? Well, just like Alex just said, they fill those in. But it's whatever gets painted into the villain spot in this movie. And so now what you're about to hear is he's going to start coloring in these villains. Like if you watch a movie, you're introduced to the villain. But where did they come from? What's their motivation? What are all the bad things that they've done previously that make them so scary? And this is what he goes into right now. So you have come of age during a time of growing inequality, a fracturing of economic opportunity. And that growing economic divide compounded other divisions in our country, regional, racial, religious, cultural. It made it harder to build consensus on issues. It made politicians less willing to compromise, which increased gridlock, which made people even more cynical about politics. And then the reckless behavior of financial elites triggered a massive financial crisis. Ten years ago this week, a crisis that resulted in the worst recession in any of our lifetimes and caused years of hardship for the American people. And right there, now we've sort of got this, this beautiful verbal technique where he's tying a lot of tragedies and a lot of like bad things that have happened in the last 30 years or so into this thing caused that thing, then that thing caused this thing, then this thing caused this and this and this and this. And these are all the problems that you're faced with now, all because these things happened previously. Yeah. And he's using, using words in a way that is a little bit inaccurate. So we hear him say, you've come to age in a time of growing inequality. Now think to yourself, is that really true? Is it really true that at the time that people have come to age and we're talking about, you know, roughly uh, millennials and kind of, you know, the beginning of Generation Z here, um, probably more millennials, have they really come to age in a time where inequality has been growing throughout their lifetime? Well, not necessarily. But how does he get away with that then? Because of the word time, right? When he says you come to age in a time, well, time is what's known as a, as he uses this word, it's a scope ambiguity. So the scope is undefined. So it's interpreted in this very broad scope where he's able to, to say that word and people fill in their own idea of time. Now, think about what's preceded this. He just finished talking about all of this history. Some of it, some people might consider ancient history or things they only read about in history books. And then he's talking about the future. So the idea of time becomes really vague and ill-defined. And so now that we've got all of these problems sort of set up, now he starts theorizing about Maybe what's going on right now? How, what is the current conflict? How are we choosing to stand up to this current conflict? Let's dive right into that, that part of the speech here. Appealing to tribe, appealing to fear, pitting one group against another, telling people that order and security will be restored if it weren't for those who don't look like us or don't sound like us or don't pray like we do. That's an old playbook. 
It's as old as time. And in a healthy democracy, it doesn't work. Our antibodies kick in. And people of goodwill from across the political spectrum call out the bigots and the fear mongers and work to compromise and get things done and promote the better angels of our nature. But when there's a vacuum in our democracy, when we don't vote, when we take our basic rights and freedoms for granted, when we turn away and stop paying attention and stop engaging and stop believing and look for the newest diversion, the, the electronic versions of bread and circuses, then other voices fill the void. A politics of fear and resentment and retrenchment takes hold and demagogues promise simple fixes to complex problems. No promise to fight for the little guy, even as they cater to the wealthiest and most powerful. No promise to clean up corruption and then plunder away. They start undermining norms that ensure accountability and try to change the rules to entrench their power further. And they appeal to racial nationalism that's barely veiled. It failed at all. Sound familiar? Wow. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> well, of course it sounds familiar because of the way in which he's describing the, the they, right? They try to appeal to this. They try to change the rules. And this is like sort of a trick, right? To get your mind to sort of come to the conclusion on its own he's sort of mimicking your own thought process, right? The whole time that he's saying all of these things, you're thinking, oh, he's talking about Trump. Oh, he's talking about Trump. And then he says, sound familiar? He was talking about yeah. Trump. So it sounds like you're coming to the, that you already believe all of those things that he just said. And then he, without explicitly even saying it, does. And that's what's beautiful here. Notice, here are some of the metaphors he's using here, okay? A playbook. Uh, of old rules, new rules, the antibodies kick in. Okay, we got that meta, that medical metaphor. In a healthy democracy. In a healthy, yeah, exactly. Uh, we need to promote the better angels of our nature. He's going back to that that uh, phrase. What does it mean to promote that specifically? The vacuum of our democracy. Okay, it's 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 within a vacuum. Painting this picture, and once he goes into the thematics, and then. He goes into the specific actions, and here's how he does it. He uses it as an away from, and he says, when we don't do these things, when we stop voting, when we avoid doing this, when we go to the newest diversion, then a politics of fear and resentment takes hold. Now, my gosh, a politics of fear and resentment takes hold. What does that even mean? Who's doing it? How does that happen? Well, it's it's as if, you know, here we are in the movie and this is in the screenplay and it's just written there. You know, during this time in the movie, this is what happens. A politics. 
of fear and resentment takes hold. Really examine that statement and try to figure out all of the different ways that that could be interpreted. This is a classic language device to set up vague and very uh, broad-based thinking. Right. Pay really close attention to that. The politics of of uh, fear and uh, and divisiveness right there. What he says is it's a nominalization right there is that he's he uses that phrase, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia as a nominalization. It is the character. It is the evil villain. And it's this is taking hold. It's grasping in its palm our democracy. And if you pay attention to how he uses that statement later on in the speech here, you'll notice he continually refers to it as though it is a character, as though it is a being that is sentient in some way. Um, You'll notice that. And I I sort of like the way that he personifies this idea and really, you know, characterizes it. Yeah. And let's notice the structure again. Okay. He goes into the themes. He goes into the metaphors. He goes into those words. Then he goes into specific actions. He talks about that for just a little bit, and then he goes back into metaphors and and vagueness, talking about, you know, no promise to clean up corruption. They try to appeal to this. And sound familiar? He, He uses this way of weaving in and out of specifics. So he goes very broad, then specific, then very broad, then specific. And he's broad when he wants for the people to have a broad mind about things. And he's specific when he wants to really nail them down to something um, in particular. So that that structure, you know, start to listen for the structure. Okay, how, how is he moving through structurally? What, what does he do through the different parts of the speech? And so now that we've got our villain, the politics of division and resentment, what's it doing? What's the history of this character? Now, I understand this is not just a matter of Democrats versus Republicans or liberals versus conservatives. At various times in our history, this kind of politics has invected both parties. Southern Democrats were the bigger defenders of slavery. It took a Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, to end it. Dixiecrats filibustered anti-lynching legislation, opposed the idea of expanding civil rights. And although it was a Democratic president and a majority Democrat Congress, spurred on by young marchers and protesters, they got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act over the finish line. Those historic laws also got passed because of the leadership of Republicans, like Illinois' own Everett Dirksen. So neither party has had a monopoly on wisdom. Neither party has been exclusively responsible for us going backwards instead of forwards. But I I have to say this, because sometimes we hear, oh, a plague on both your houses. Over the past few decades, wasn't true when Jim Edgar was a governor here in Illinois, or Jim Thompson was governor, got a lot of good 
Republican friends here in Illinois, but over the past few decades, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia has unfortunately found a home in the Republican Party. This Congress has championed the unwinding of campaign finance laws to give billionaires outside influence over our politics, systematically attacked voting rights to make it harder for young people and minorities and the poor to vote, <laughs> handed out tax cuts without regard to deficits, slashed the safety net wherever it could, cast dozens of votes to take away health insurance from ordinary Americans, embraced wild conspiracy theories like those surrounding Benghazi or my birth certificate, <laughs> rejected science, rejected facts on things like climate change, embraced a rising absolutism from a willingness to default on America's debt by not paying our bills to a refusal to even meet, much less consider, a qualified nominee for the Supreme Court because he happened to be nominated by a Democratic president. None of this is conservative. I don't, I don't mean to pretend I... I, I'm channeling Abraham Lincoln now, but that's not what he had in mind, I think, when he helped form the Republican Party. It's not conservative. It sure isn't normal. It's radical. It's a vision that says the protection of our power and those who back us is all that matters, even when it hurts the country. It's a vision that says the few who can afford high-priced lobbyists and unlimited campaign contributions set the agenda. And over the past two years, this vision is now nearing its logical conclusion. All right. Stage is set. The villain is about to seize power and has taken over the Republican Party and is right on the cusp of realizing its logical conclusion. It's ready, and we know now all of what has happened to bring us to this point. We had the conspiracy theories around Benghazi. We had the birthers. They had rejected science. They rejected facts. And we know that over the past few decades, this is Obama's quote, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia has found a home in the Republican Party where they embrace absolutism and debt. I love this part, by the way. They embraced it, debt, by not paying our bills. Now, he takes something like that. Now, of course, the national debt of a country is not the same thing as an individual not paying their bills, right? So a country, if, if they don't pay a bill and they take on debt, well, it's going to have a radically different consequence than if someone doesn't pay their bills, but he brings it down to a very small practical level. And then we have this idea of, hey, this is who the Republican Party used to be. It used to be Abe Lincoln. It used to be our history. It used to be that foundational idea where 
It took that Republican president, Abe Lincoln, to end slavery. But none of what's happening now is conservative. It's not conservative. It isn't normal. It's radical. And so, you know, we have this this um, idea of saying, hey, this is what's going on right now. This is the history. Here, here's what it is. Now, what, what we're looking forward to, so right now he's in the present moment part of his speech. What we're looking forward to now is, okay, what's the future? What's the future? And he says, here's the negative path. It's a vision that says the few that can afford high-priced lobbyists get to control the country. It's a vision that says the other stuff down the negative path. What's going to come next in his speech, of course, is going to be the positive upward road that of what he sees the vision is for the country. And what if you listen really closely here, too, is he's walking this really tight line, this tightrope where he almost wants to speak to Republicans' better nature without maligning them, without alienating them. And he does this by saying that the current Republican Party has been taken over by this uh, malignant force, but that's not what Republicans are. They're good people who are trying to stand up for all these values. They've just been taken over by this by this terrible virus, this this uh, this this force of the rich and powerful, and it, it's a good way for to attack the other side without alienating them, but then also making it more agreeable to your supporters because it makes it a lot easier for people who are maybe on the fence or skeptical or whatever it may be to agree with that statement. And then a move forward. Yeah, he's able to create this inclusiveness, which is his message, of course, is, you know, inclusiveness. Hey, we're all in this together. And at the same time, take people who wouldn't have agreed with him otherwise and be able to bring them on board, be able to say, hey, here's what this is really all about. And this is really powerful because what he's doing is he's tapping into a person's values And he's doing it based on what they believe, not what he's telling them, what they already believe, what they already have a conviction about. And he takes that conviction and he says, hey, if you believe that, then you cannot simultaneously hold in mind all of this other stuff. So what he's doing is he's creating a cognitive dissonance. He's creating a sense of, hey, you have two ideas. They do not stack on top of each other. They are out of alignment. And so you have to somehow resolve this misalignment. You have to somehow figure it out. Now, they're still listening to him. How do you think they're going to figure it out? Probably what he's going to say next. So these are extraordinary times. And they're dangerous times. But here's the good news. In two months, we have the chance, not the certainty, but the chance, to restore some semblance of sanity to our politics. Because there is actually only one real check on bad policy and abuses of power, and that's you. You and your vote. 
All right, so he's stirred up the emotion, and now what do we hear him doing? Bringing it down to a specific action. These are dangerous times. Here's the good news. And he's really bringing in this idea, like if you remember back when Donald Trump won the election, and a lot of people really assumed that Hillary was just a shoe-in, that she was absolutely going to win. Donald Trump had absolutely no chance, and they were really mesmerized at the fact that she had lost. But what happened was is that because they thought that she was a shoe-in, there was a complacency. And so what he's doing now is immunizing against that complacency by saying, hey, we have a chance. It's not a certainty, but it's a chance to begin to change things and require specific action. Right. And if you zoom back out to that metaphor for the for the movie or the book or the story, right, is that, you know, we've started at the beginning, like here is our 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 prosperous world doing just fine, overcoming all of these challenges. But now there's a new villain that's coming to destroy everything. And then here are all the terrible things that it's done previously. And this is why we need to be scared of it now and and why you're coming to age in dangerous times. But here's the good news. Here is the hero rising up with the ability, the possibility, the chance to defeat the villain. But only if these certain circumstances, only if you help them. This is your this is your moment to to rise up and be that arrow or whatever it is. And uh, this is his part of his storytelling arc that we're so familiar with. It's just great public speaking. Um, and it's a great way to frame uh, an issue and then present the solution, which in this case is just voting. Now, what is he going to do with this? Of course, you know, he wants for them to vote. He wants for them to to do something. And how is he going to frame that solution? Well, in classic Obama fashion, he's going to do it through inclusiveness, through bringing people together. And that's what we're going to hear him talk about next. That's to bring people together. Not tear them apart. We need majorities in Congress and state legislatures who are serious about governing and want to bring about real change and improvements in people's lives. And we won't win people over by calling them names or dismissing entire chunks of the country as as racist or sexist or homophobic. When I say bring people together, I mean all of our people. You know, this, this whole notion that has sprung up recently about Democrats needing to choose between trying to appeal to white working class voters or voters of color and women and LGBT Americans. That's nonsense. I don't buy that. I got votes from every demographic. We won by reaching out to everybody and competing everywhere, and by fighting for every vote. And that's what we've got to do in this election and every election after that. And we can't do that if we immediately disregard what others have to say from the start because they're not like us, because they're they're white or they're black or they're man or a woman or they're gay or they're straight. If we think that somehow there's no way they can understand how... I'm feeling, and, and, and therefore don't have any standing to speak on certain matters because we're, we're only defined by certain characteristics. 
That doesn't work if you want a healthy democracy. We can't do that if we traffic in absolutes when it comes to policy. Now, to, to make democracy work, we have to be able to get inside the reality of people who are different, have different experiences, come from different backgrounds. We have to engage them even when it is frustrating. We have to listen to them even when we don't like what they have to say. We have to hope that we can change their minds and we have to remain open to them changing ours. And that doesn't mean, by the way, abandoning our principles or caving to bad policy in the interests of maintaining some phony version of civility. All right, so he's bringing people together, all of the people. And notice here the, the definition of an either-or, okay? Black or white, man or woman, gay or straight, either or. So he's saying, well, here's the divisions that people want to split people into, but we do it through everybody, those universal quantifiers. We've talked about how Donald Trump uses these a lot in the past. Well, here we hear Obama using it. Um, we want we won by appealing to everybody, by voting everywhere and getting every vote, and we need to do that for every election. And then he says, well, and we can't do that if we go and do the either or. So he's being able to collapse this idea of an either or, and he's saying, hey, it's all about having everyone be able to do it. But we can't do that if we traffic in absolutes when it comes to policy. And then he goes into this idea of we have to do this. We have to do that. Well, that idea of a person having to do something meaning it means that it's a requirement. It's not an option. It's not a choice. It's not something they can do. It's something they have to do. We have to get inside their reality. We have to engage them. We have to listen to them. We have to hope. Remember his campaign slogan. We have to do that. And that doesn't mean dot, dot, dot. So this type of repetition Okay, number one. And then number two, the way of implying that we, we've got to do this. It, it has to be something that, that happens. It's, it's really interesting how he's able to both split it into the have-tos and the want-tos and at the same time be talking about inclusiveness. And this is one of the moments where Barack Obama really starts to shine as a public speaker as compared to Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, anyone. Right is because here he doesn't have he, he's describing very specific prescriptions for how to behave with uh, with sort of a, a scalpel right here is that he's not speaking in very broad terms only sometimes when he needs to broaden your your thought but he's able to the, the broaden and then very uh, narrow into very specifics. And talk about, well, you have to engage, you have to listen, even when you don't want to. And that doesn't mean he's talking about very specific behaviors that he wants you to change. Now, imagine Donald Trump trying to get very specific about the behaviors that he wants you to do like that. He just doesn't do it. And you get into to Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, they, they try but not nearly as artfully. And here he's able to just, just laser focus in on these things 
and go through step by step. This is how you repair democracy. This is how you do this. When you're confronted with a situation like this, you need to behave this way. And it gets even more specific. I love this here because he's almost criticizing both Hillary Clinton and the Bernie Sanders wings of the Democratic Party in both this part and the uh, moment that we're going to be playing for you in just a second. I'll be honest. Sometimes I get into arguments with progressive friends about what the current political movement requires. There are well-meaning folks passionate about social justice who think things have gotten so bad, the lines have been so starkly drawn, that we have to fight fire with fire. We have to do the same things to the Republicans that they do to us, adopt their tactics, say whatever works, make up stuff about the other side. I don't agree with that. It's not because I'm soft. It's not because I'm interested in promoting an an empty bipartisanship. I don't agree with it because eroding our civic institutions and our civic trust and and making people angrier and, and yelling at each other and making people cynical about government, that always works better for those who don't believe in the power of collective action. And right here, what he's doing is that he's fitting all of this in to the initial setup of the politics of paranoia and resentment and division. Is he saying that if we fight this war in this way, then the bad side wins? The evil force that's unseen takes over our party, too, and we lose. And that's how he's framing this right here. And honestly, I think that this is a, a, a real critique of, the, of Bernie Sanders' wing, whereas the last clip that we played right before that was a big critique on Hillary Clinton's campaign of trying to uh, build a narrative of black versus white man versus woman, gay versus straight, sort of the, the politics of, of identity. And he does a good job of basically saying, being the referee, standing in between the two sides saying, no, you're both wrong. We need to win on great ideas that work for everyone. Yeah, and he has a real diss here, uh, very kind of artful diss while he's in the middle of this, of, of the Republican Party. Right? We have to do the same things, adopt their tactics. You have to you know, say whatever works, make up stuff. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to make up stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, so what are we saying? What is he saying here about the Republican Party? Well, he's saying they make up stuff. They're the angry party. They're the cynical party. They're the ones who, who do this. It's, um, I think that it could be applied to Bernie. It could be applied to Hillary's campaign. You know, it can also be applied, you know, very specifically to Donald Trump and, and by extension, all the Republicans who agree with them or who are not taking action against him. Now, in this next clip here, what we're going to be really listening for is it's a couple of sentences, really, that Barack Obama does where he just goes into a very, very vague and artful type of sentence. He's going to be talking in this way that is very hypnotic. So let's go ahead and take a listen to this and just allow yourself to notice, 
your own perceptions and feelings as you hear it and also to become aware if you can pick out some of the language. Making democracy work means holding on to our principles, having clarity about our principles, and then having the confidence to get in the arena and have a serious debate. And it also means appreciating that progress does not happen all at once, but when you put your shoulder to the wheel, if you're willing to fight for it, things do get better. And, and let me tell you something, particularly young people here. Better is good. I used to have to tell my young staff this all the time in the White House. Better is good. That's the history of progress in this country. Not perfect. Better. All right, you youngin, come here. I want to tell you something, because you might not have known this, but better is good. So what what is he saying here? What does this mean exactly? Better is good. Better is good. It's not perfect, but it's better. Notice how there is zero content here whatsoever. It's just talking about relative qualities. Better than what? Better as compared to what? This is what's called a comparative deletion. So when he's saying the word better, it's better as compared to what? And what it's being compared to is being deleted. It's being you know let go of. Now, notice in that whole stretch of time that he was talking, can you really name specifically, specifically what he was actually saying there? Making democracy work means holding on to our principles. Okay, what does that mean? Holding on to which principles? Okay, and maybe those are the principles laid out for us through history. Maybe there are other principles. We don't really know. It means having clarity about our principles. How exactly does that happen? And then having the confidence, which kind of confidence, to get into the arena, now we go into metaphor, and have a serious debate. It also means appreciating that progress does not happen all at once. And when you put your shoulder to the wheel, we've got that great uh, imagery there. If you're willing to fight for it, things do get better. Things get better. So what exactly is he saying here? I don't know. You know, it's just very thematic, and this is a great example of how politicians can say a lot, but without really saying much at all. And better is good. Not perfect, better. Now, in this next clip, you'll notice here that what he's doing here, he's trying to break people of that idealistic mold and starting to move them toward incremental change. In this next segment that we're going to be listening to here, you're going to hear him going from the thematic back down into the specifics. And just notice how artfully he does this. Let's take a listen. But to say that common ground exists doesn't mean it will inevitably win out. History shows the power of fear. And the closer that we get to Election Day, the more those invested in the politics of fear and division will work, to, will do anything to hang on to their recent gains. Fortunately, I am hopeful because out of this political darkness, I am seeing a great awakening of citizenship all across the country. 
I cannot tell you how encouraged I've been by watching so many people get involved for the first time, or the first time in a long time. They're marching, and they're organizing, and they're registering people to vote, and they're running for office themselves. Look at this crop of Democratic candidates running for Congress and running for governor, running for the state legislature, running for district attorney, running for school board. It is a movement of citizens who happen to be younger and more diverse and more female than ever before, and that's really useful. And here, back to the the whole overarching storyline of all of this, right, is that We've now gone into exactly that, that battle between light and darkness. How do we win? What are the tools that we need? We need to make our democracy work by holding on to our principles and all of that. And now he gets to the outcome. After the battle, what does he see? He sees an America that's ready for a great awakening. And that's what, that's what can happen if we take action and we take the action that he's prescribed. Yeah, so history shows the power of fear. Again, we're going, here's the negative, it's in the past. Those invested in the politics of fear are doing this. Fear and divisiveness are doing this. Now we're kind of in the ongoing present. Fortunately, I am hopeful. Now we're transitioning to the future. We have that political darkness. You know, this idea of the the political darkness, it just reminds me of the Joe Biden speech, right? Remember that? Friends, we're walking down a very dark path. Okay, Mm -hmm. that that idea. And but now we have this great awakening of citizenship across the country and people are energized. They're registering people to vote. They're voting themselves. They're campaigning. Let's look at all these people running. And now he gets a chance to start to talk about some of the specific candidates. He starts to talk about women being able to be more in the campaign process. And so we hear him transitioning from that thematic idea right into the specific actions. All right. I think that's all the time that we have for today. Now, if you want to hear even more of how Barack Obama uses these types of language patterns to influence voters, head on over to our Patreon. Like we said at the beginning, we've got even more content about a speech that he delivered the next day where he built on some of the themes that he talked about in this episode. And this is these are very, very powerful themes, and we're going to be breaking down even more just how Obama is doing this and how in particular he's being able to influence people without them even knowing it. And so if you really enjoyed this this show, you know, make sure to go on iTunes, rate and review us on iTunes. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Go ahead and shoot us a tweet. Let us know how you enjoyed the show. Who would you like to see on the show and what topics would you like to cover? And we will see you for the next episode.